0: Thanks for listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. Please join us this Sunday at 11 a.m. To plan your visit, go to mtcarmeldemarest.com. Book of Acts, chapter 2. Lord willing, we'll look at verses 25 through 33. If you don't have a copy of God's Word in front of you, I encourage you to take out uh, the insert provided for you in your bulletin. There's a copy of the scriptures there. Uh, you want to make sure that we're preaching God's word, the Bible to you. Um, if you're watching at home, uh, you can download the U Version Bible app. That's Y-O-U version. After you download it, uh, go to the More Tab Tap Events, find Mount Carmel Baptist Church, and then click on today's sermon title and the scriptures should appear for you there. Acts chapter 2, verses 25 through 33, as we continue our series on Pentecost. Pentecost, we're in part 2, simply entitled Ain't No Grave. Ain't No Grave. Johnny Cash was suffering from diabetes and asthma after decades of hard living. June Carter Cash, his wife of 35 years, died unexpectedly after surgery. and Johnny was crushed. His last producer, Rick Rubin, talked to him an hour after June died. He writes, I never heard him so distraught, Johnny. And he said, you know, I've been through tremendous pain in my life and I've never felt anything like this. It was so bad that I didn't know what to say to Johnny. He sounded so weak, so beaten, and I never really heard him like that before. I'm not sure where the question came from, but I said to him, Do you feel like somewhere you can find faith? And when he heard that word, a switch went off in his head, and he answered in a strong voice, My faith is unshakable. And the conversation changed after that. So he had tremendous faith. He didn't really have fear. And he already was dealing with the pain. I think he had acceptance. When he knew he was going to die, he was calm and matter-of-fact about it. And that was it. The Christian faith, and Johnny Cash is right, can be an unshakable faith. Because there ain't no grave. It's Pentecost. The disciples are speaking in tongues. The Apostle Peter steps up to the microphone and explains why this miracle is taking place. It was in fulfillment of a prophecy in the book of Joel chapter 2. And it had everything to do with Jesus of Nazareth being the Lord God himself. And God proved this by raising Jesus from the dead. And Peter makes this amazing statement in which we left off from part one of this series last week. He proclaimed that Jesus could not remain dead. That it was impossible for him to remain in the grave. Why? Why? What? made Peter believe that about Jesus. And so Peter begins to give us his explanation for that thought. And he cites none other than King David of Israel. Let's look and see the next section in his sermon in Acts chapter 2, verse 25. Notice, for David says of him, David speaking about Jesus, I saw the Lord ever before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope because you will not abandon me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. You have revealed the paths of life to me You will fill me with gladness in your presence. And then Peter looks up, right, from reading his Bible. He quoted this. And he's going to begin to explain it. He says, Brothers and sisters, I can confidently speak to y'all about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. And notice how he, he twists scripture. Ready? He says, He was not abandoned in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. He subs out the words. Moves on. God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. Wow. Just another amazing section in Peter's first sermon. Why could Jesus not remain dead? Why was it impossible for the grave to hold Jesus? Number one, write this down. We're going to look at this Old Testament prophecy from King David. And here's what David prophesies. The Christ must rise. The Christ must rise. What did David foresee? This is Peter's second Old Testament citation, and it is from Psalm 16. Write that out in the margin of your notes. In the psalm, David, the psalmist, believes that Yahweh, when it says Lord here in the Greek, that's the Greek term kurios, which means supreme authority. But if you go back and read Psalm 16 in the original language, Hebrew, I mentioned this before, it is the tetragrammaton, the four letters of God's personal name. And so this is David speaking to the God of Israel. Yahweh, in this psalm. And he believes that Yahweh will preserve him from dying, either from some type of battle or from a sickness. But he is ultimately trusting in Yahweh to preserve his life so that he can continue to enjoy it until a ripe old age under God's blessing. He even cites the Holy One. And it seems to be even in reference to himself. And that either means the one who is faithful and loyal to God or the one who is perfect and sinless that God adores, his beloved one. Now, many people, and we can understand this, they did not think that this psalm was what they called messianic. They didn't have expectations when When Jesus was living and when Peter is preaching this sermon, his audience that he's preaching to on Pentecost did not understand Psalm 16 to be a prophecy at all. They took it to mean what it was for face value. David is speaking poetically. He's using hyperbole. He's purposely exaggerating who he is and what God is going to do for him. So it's not to be interpreted literally. Literally. And what Peter does is he argues that this psalm cannot refer to David. Why? Peter interprets it literally and says, David did see corruption. David is rotting in his grave. Peter's audience would have been quite familiar with David's tomb. At that time, it was a historic site that you can visit in Jerusalem. In fact, people who probably had come into Pentecost for the festival had passed by King David's tomb. And so he clearly points out, he says, has has David went to the grave? And everybody's like, amen, he's dead. (laughs) Is he rotten in there? And they're like, sure is. I'm not going in to find out. And so he establishes, there's no way that if you attempted to read and interpret Psalm 16 literally... It cannot apply the King David. or at least it cannot apply exclusively to David. It must be in part, but not fully. And so then Peter does something amazing. He reinterprets Scripture. He goes away from the traditional understanding of the text. And imbues the text with new meaning. And that's significant. And I'll get to the significance of his hermeneutics. How he handles the scripture in just a moment. In Psalm 132 verse 11. Write it down. Psalm 132 verse 11. David recalls Psalm 132 verse 11. As reflecting God's promise To establish the throne of David's offspring forever. This is called the Davidic covenant. All right, you may be familiar with it. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, if you know the story of King David, David wants to build a temple for Yahweh, the God of Israel, to house him in the city of Jerusalem. And Yahweh does not select David to be the person who builds his temple, but what's amazing is God makes a promise to David and says this, that one of your offspring will sit on the throne of the kingdom of Israel forever. Now there's a couple of ways you have to think about that. Did God take that, did God mean that literally to King David or is he speaking in hyperbole? Essentially this, as long as there is a kingdom in Israel One of David's descendants will sit on the throne. And the reason why you have to think about that is because if you know the history of Israel, in 586 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came into Jerusalem, ransacked it, and took Israel captive into Babylon. And there wasn't a, quote, kingdom of Israel anymore. And there was no Davidic king, a descendant of David, sitting on the throne. And so the question is, did God not make good on His promise? In fact, the whole period between the Testaments, that intertestamental period, the the Jews are looking for this messianic king, this Davidic king. Who's going to return and restore the kingdom of Israel? throw off its Roman oppressors, and make good on God's promise. So the Messiah, in their mind, is this geopolitical leader. He's like General Joshua, and he governs like Solomon, okay? That's who they're expecting. And that was what uh, Peter references here. Everybody knows that God made a promise to David, right? And then he alludes to the fact, well, don't you also believe that David's a prophet? What do we mean by prophet? We don't generally think of King David as a prophet. We think of him as the shepherd boy, right? We think of him as the one who killed Goliath. We think of his sin with Bathsheba. These are the things he's known for. He's a man after God's own heart. But generally, when you think of prophet, you think about Isaiah, Jeremiah, right? Ezekiel, Daniel. Not David. But what is a prophet? At the very basic fundamental level, a prophet is just simply someone who discloses the character of God and the will of God. Now let me ask you this. Are the Psalms in that sense, the Psalms of David, prophetic? Oh, absolutely. You can read the Psalms and grow closer to who God is and how he wants you to respond. And so when he says he's a prophet, hearing those people, they're, they're not debating that. King David, yes, he's a prophet. He discloses God's will to the people of Israel. And then he says, and and God made a promise to David, did he not? And everybody's just shaking their head, listening, like, so far, pretty good. We get you. And then he does something amazing. Here's, he finally gives his new reinterpretation of Psalm 16. The person in Psalm 16 must be someone whom David saw with his prophetic vision. That God was giving him insight and disclosing who the Davidic king would be. That's what Peter is saying in here. He is saying the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the Davidic king, the person who would rule The lawn of David and reign over the kingdom of God forever. David was speaking in first person of him. He was speaking according to the Spirit of Christ and he was expressing his faith in God, but speaking as his successor. And that's why, did you notice what he does in the text? He actually, when he goes to reinterpret Psalm 16, go back and look verse 31. He says, he was not abandoned in Hades and his flesh did not experience decay. If you go back up and look in verse um, 26 or no, verse uh, 27, this is the verse he's quoting from the Old Testament, I mean, Old Testament. Because you will not abandon me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. Did you see what he did? He literally substituted the Holy One, that faithful, loyal person to God, that sinless, perfect person that is God's beloved, and he says, his flesh. Why would he actually put substitute those words? And it comes with number two. Write this down. And this is what he wants to point out. Jesus was raised. Jesus was raised. In Peter's mind, he completely associates the body of Jesus with the Holy One of Israel. Has no problem subbing them out. The proof of Jesus' resurrection is that Peter says, I have seen the Davidic king. I've talked with him. And he has let us know that this verse of Scripture, he spoke through David. And he was talking about himself. Jesus' resurrection from the dead is where Peter finds the ultimate interpretation and significance of David's words. Now put it together. Let's put this together and then we'll unpack this for the rest of the time being. David is prophesying that the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, his promised Davidic king, Right? that would reign of the kingdom of Israel forever, he prophesied that, therefore, he cannot die. He cannot remain dead. He has to be incorruptible, immortal. And think about that for just a second. What an amazing candidate as king. Could you imagine any presidential candidate stepping up? It's like, give us your qualifications. And one of them goes, I am incorruptible and immortal. Put him against any army, right? They can't kill me. Anybody's injured or sick, I can raise them from the dead. He wields life. This is the amazing candidate for the Davidic king. And he says so the Christ, the King of Israel, must be raised. He must be eternal. And then you have to answer this question Jesus was raised, right? Yeah, that's what the P- Peter and the apostles are testifying to. God raised Jesus from the dead. So put the syllogism together. Premise one, the Christ must be raised. Premise two, Jesus was raised. Hmm. So who's the Christ? Write it down, number three. And this is a huge, he drops the bomb on Jesus is the Christ. Now, you've got to think for just a second. That the audience had to start sweating. Because wow, What did that audience do to Jesus? They crucified him. Right? They're going, whoa, 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 whoa. What do you mean? He's David's king? Yes. Yes, he is the Christ, the Messiah. We killed the very one who saves us? Yes. They're sweating it out. Peter's point is that only through the resurrection of the dead could the son of David rule forever over God's people. And this is something that's hard for us to understand. When we talk about Jesus' resurrection, theologically it is different from every other of the handful of, of resurrections in the Bible. What we call the other resurrections, they're either a resuscitation or a revivification. And what we mean by that is that when Elijah and even when Jesus raised people from the dead they would later go on to do what? Die again. When they say that God raised Jesus from the dead, notice first of all that God was the principal actor. God intervened. He didn't use another person like Elijah or a Peter or a Paul. God goes and raises Jesus from the dead. But the other part that's interesting is what we call the eschatological resurrection. Is that God reached into the future and let the, the resurrection that happens at the end, where he raises everybody up out of the grave to immortality and incorruptibility, he took that and applied it just to his son to prove its forgiveness in his name. He has the rights to eternal life. And that's why the, the scriptures say over and over again in the New Testament, he is the firstborn of the dead, the firstborn. He got up before any of us. So he's raised to immortality and incorruptibility. The literal words from Psalm 16 can't refer to David... ...for his soul did go to the abode of the dead... ...and his body did undergo composition. So then, decomposition. So then, because of those glorious truths... ...that were not fulfilled in David... ...Peter understood them to be prophetic... ...and if they were prophetic, they had to be fulfilled... ...and if they had to be fulfilled in whom but the Messiah, Jesus. They were convinced that Jesus, unlike David, had been raised immediately from the dead, never to experience decay and corruption. Jesus' resurrection is what links him to David's Holy One in Psalm 16. And so, Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, and Christ and Davidic king of the people of Israel. Only one person has conquered the grave, and that's Jesus. That's Jesus. I want you to think of this. God kept his promise then to King David, did he not? You want a king that will rule forever? I'll give you an immortal and incorruptible king. And after God does this, I love love the statement in Acts 1. Do you remember what the uh, the disciples asked Jesus before he ascends into heaven? He says this, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? (laughs) They wanted it. They're like, you're clearly the Davidic king. Won't you march into Jerusalem now and set up shop? And what does Jesus tell them? It's not for you to know the times, right? And I love the fact, catch this though, this is what's so awesome. Did you understand by what he said, what he admitted? He is going to do it. Did you see that? It was not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when. He's coming back. And he will reign from Jerusalem over all the nations. It's going to happen. But where is he now? And this is where... Peter begins to make an incredible transition that affects you right here today. Listen to what it says. Verse, let's go to verse 31. Seeing uh, what was to... No, 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 I want to go... Yeah. No, I want to be in verse 33. There it is. Therefore, verse 33. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit... He, referring to Jesus, has poured out what you both see and hear. Now, he's going to link a couple of things, right? He just linked the the prophecy of Psalm 16 with Jesus of Nazareth because he was raised. So Jesus must be the Christ. But what do we, if you remember this, in Joel's prophecy, in the last days, when people call upon the name of the Lord, which is Jesus, for salvation... There is this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is showered all right, on each and every person who repents of their sins and trusts Jesus as Savior and God. Notice what he has done. Is Peter sees in the Old Testament that the promised Holy Spirit, the right to dispense the person of the Holy Spirit all over the world, belongs to the Christ, the Messiah, the Davidic King. And it says that God raised him and exalted him at his right hand. Now, many of us think of the right hand, and there's nothing wrong with this, as a geographical location, that Jesus is in heaven sitting at the right hand of God. And that's probably the case. But when we talk about it, it actually is imbued with theological significance. To be at the right hand of any person is to, so to speak, be at God's right hand or God's right hand man, that it's At the right hand is the administration of God. At the right hand, there's access to God. If you want to get to God, you've got to know his right hand man. And that's the Christ. That's Jesus. That's the Messiah. But notice what Peter says. He has given the authority to dispense the Holy Spirit to his right hand man. All right, to the Christ. Now, notice the link he's putting together. They're sitting there seeing the disciples speak in tongues and languages they've never learned, never studied, and they're clearly articulating in the greatest vernacular for people to hear the mighty acts of God. Peter stands up and says, this is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, that in the last days, God's people will prophesy. Now notice what he's saying. And who's responsible For pouring out this spirit on these people. Jesus of Nazareth, who is at the right hand of God the Father. That is a, can you say, that's a terrifying thought. Do you catch that? The reason this is happening on people who believe in Jesus is because Jesus is in heaven interceding for us. So here's an amazing thought. He's going, if you see the Holy Spirit at work in the lives of people who name Jesus Lord, it's actually a proof that Jesus is exalted in heaven. Why? Because he's responsible for dispensing the Spirit. Nobody else is. You only receive this relationship with the Holy Spirit because Jesus gives it to his church. And it makes you think about that. If that's the connection, if people, think about this, if people are seeing the Spirit's activity, His fruit in our lives, they are getting evidence that God raised Jesus from the dead and exalted Him to God's right-hand man. Because only Jesus can dispense the Spirit into your life. They're stunned because what could they not... Notice Peter's just tight argument when he's arguing all this. It can't apply to David, right? You can't deny the life of Jesus. You all saw it. And then notice this. You can't deny the miracle of what's happening here. And he has weaved this gospel story all through it all to say, this Jesus was the Christ. He was crucified for your sins. God raised him from the dead in vindication. He's now seated at the right hand of God the Father. And what does notice? He has taken a notice in your life. That's terrifying. That's terrifying. The God of heaven stoops down, looks over his creation, and is looking to you for repentance of sin and forgiveness, to call out to Jesus for forgiveness of sins. And notice what happens he will respond. He'll pour out His Spirit in your life. That's actually happening today, church. That is transpiring now. That's the age we're in. That's what we preach and proclaim to you. I like what one commentator said. He says, the Spirit is the earthly presence of the exalted Lord. To say it more precisely, in the Spirit... The resurrected one is manifested in his resurrection power. Why? Because he's raised, he now has this authority. And what does he do? As the person who has the promised Holy Spirit, it's his gift to dispense. He goes, everyone who repents and believes in me, I give it to them. That's what I want to do. Wow! <laughs> okay? And so when we say things like, this is what's so hard, we're always like, "Church." I mean, saints, have you ever thought about, it? we know Jesus is here. Look, he's more here than you're here. That's what's so hard for to think about. He is. Why? Because his spirit has been poured out on the church. And if the spirit is here, it means Jesus is at the right hand of the Father doing business, quote, for you. You're going to see, does it make sense why the crowd started screaming out to Peter, what must we do? What do we got to do? I want you to think of a couple of things real quick because here's what this whole text hinges upon. It hinges upon Peter's interpretation of Psalm 16, right? Because it's all linked together. If David prophesied that the Christ must rise, they're saying, Peter's, Peter's saying, I saw Jesus raised. And then all these things are associated with the Christ, specifically pouring out the promised Holy Spirit. Then it all follows, it all follows that Jesus is the one that the Spirit, who pours out the Spirit upon the earth. So the question that I want us to ask for just a second, just do a little bit of apologetic work, what made Peter sincerely believe that David wasn't speaking about himself but speaking prophetically about the resurrection of Jesus? That's a, I mean, that's a, a huge statement to make in that day and age couple of things. Number one, and you can write it down. I think it appears in the notes for you. In Jewish thought, the resurrection of the dead always occurred at the end of the world. And what I'm asking you is this. What made Peter believe that that eschatological resurrection, the end-time resurrection that waited at the end of history had all of a sudden there had been one exception to the rule? One man got an early resurrection. What's so special about him? And what I'm asking you to say is the only thing that makes sense of that theologically is that Jesus spoke with Peter after being raised. He had conversations with the risen Lord. Peter did. Number two, look at this. There was no conception of isolated individuals rising from the dead. The resurrection was conceived as a general resurrection of all mankind. So, Here's the first one has to do with the end times. One person receives an exception and it happens right after his death. The second one is this, is that in Judaism, the eschatological resurrection happened to everyone. Why is this man picked out? That's an important point. Why is Jesus the one that gets this early exception? And this was Peter goes, because he's the Christ, the son of God. That's what he puts together. Number three, number three, the resurrection was conceived in a way that did not fit the gospel's picture of Jesus' body with its unique features. So let me explain what that means. Is remember some of the things that Jesus' body did. He walked through walls, right? Bam, he appeared. Other things that were really weird about the body of Jesus, it still had his scars in his hands, right? What I need you to understand, if you go back and study Judaism's thoughts on what the resurrected body would be like, they would not have wrote down what happened to Jesus. And so what is Peter doing for us when they let us know that Jesus appeared to them? He's just giving them God's honest truth. This is what happened. This is what we saw. It did not fit their prior conceptions of the resurrection. They had every predisposition to the contrary. That Jesus would be raised. And then the third or fourth and final thing is the Jewish understanding of visions contain two elements. A lot of people will say this. Maybe Peter just had a vision or a hallucination under the distress of having denied Jesus. There's a couple of problems with that. Number one, they were understood as being visions of people directly translated to heaven and not raised from the dead. Here's the point. Even if, so to speak... That he hallucinated the appearance of Jesus. That doesn't necessarily mean that that a physical resurrection happened. That sometimes it would be this, that so and so is going to be with the Lord and I had a vision that they came back to me. What was Peter proclaiming? He wasn't saying this appearance of Jesus is he's in heaven now and he appeared to me. No, he physically got up from the grave. And came and talked to me. That's a significant difference. Nothing like that in Judaism. And then the last part, and this is absolutely true. In Jewish tradition, visions were always experienced by individuals and not by groups. You can't have a group hallucination. right? It doesn't exist. It's like having group dreams. And this is terrifying. I mean, in a good way. And I'm, I just will never forget when I, it hit me really for the first time where almost like faith becomes understanding. We're not talking about mess and make believe. Like if you believe Jesus hard enough, he's like raised from the dead in your mind. That's not how the Bible works. They are declaring history. They are declaring the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead. Where the faith comes in is how to interpret the significance of that fact. And Peter is saying, I'm telling you, catch this, what Jesus told me. If you go back, and it's creepy, we're going to look at it next week, how Jesus loved in his lifetime when he was on the earth would put himself in the Davidic Psalms. Uh, that's me. That's me. That's about me. And you understand? I mean, I'm telling you now, you had disciples in the background. Jesus is up there claiming, oh, yeah, David's talking about me. And disciples are going, (laughs) like, don't ask. Don't, he is, I mean, adamant that it's him. They thought he was crazy when it came to this kind of stuff. You're not going to Jerusalem to die and be raised. Why would we believe that? And then it drops on them. And what does it make them do? And this is what I love is after Peter spent time with Jesus after his resurrection, he went back to the Old Testament and said, i got to read it all over again. <laughs> Christian preaching, right? This is like you know the end of the movie. You go back to Genesis 1-1, and you're going, God, God created me, but that was Jesus making me. See, that's what's so hard. You start seeing Jesus' fingerprints all over the Old Testament. What gives them this Christological interpretation of the Old Testament? What explains this kind of preaching? God raised Jesus from the dead. What a crazy thought. I mean, that's why sweats were breaking out over the audience. Nobody's ever preached like this before. Death couldn't hold Jesus (laughs) because Peter was right. It was because of what David said about him. That simple. David said so. (laughs) This is going to happen. We just didn't think it that way. Jesus offers you and me salvation and a share in this resurrection life. It always makes me wonder, and this is just because of the goodness of God but notice the Christ Christ is the one who receives the promised Holy Spirit. And thank God none of us are saviors. Because if Josh was in heaven, I'd be like, I'm not giving that to you. Thank God they didn't promise me that. He promised Christ that. And Christ is better than we deserve. I want to give that to them. Johnny Cash, his last months were a gradual slide into death. The last of six Johnny Cash CDs produced by Rick Rubin is a record of those final months and that sustaining faith, that unshakable faith. The last CD in the title song was written by a Pentecostal preacher, Brother Claude Elah. And the lyrics could not have been more relevant to Cash. You know them. He says, there ain't no grave can hold my body down. There ain't no grave can hold my body down. When I hear that trumpet sound, I'm going to rise right out of the ground. There ain't no grave that can hold my body down. How can we sing and declare that? Because of what Peter said, there was no grave that could hold Jesus down. I'm going to ask every head bowed and every eye closed. We have two responses today. Number one, there is a Jesus in heaven who has, by his own sovereign will, taken interest in what happens in his church today. Not making it up. He is present, walking among us. And the scriptures promise over and over again, Jesus' word is this, everyone who calls upon me as Lord will be saved. They'll be forgiven of their sins, delivered from the wrath of God, and he will pour out this relationship with the Holy Spirit into your life. And I believe it because God raised him to prove it. So if you're ready to confess you're a sinner in need of forgiveness and to receive eternal life and the Holy Spirit into your life, you can call out to him today, Jesus is not dead He's alive, he is the son of God, so he hears every thought and whisper. And if you want to call out to him and begin a relationship with with him, would you repeat this prayer after me with every head bowed and every eye closed? Just say, dear Jesus, I confess I am a sinner and I deserve judgment, but I believe you love me You came to this earth for me and you died on the cross to forgive me of all my sin. And I believe God raised you from the dead. Be my Lord and Savior. Forgive me of my sin and fill me with the Holy Spirit. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to encourage you that if you prayed that prayer, do not deny your Lord. Go public and make much of your Savior and God, Jesus. And how do we do that? Jesus taught us clearly in his life and ministry It's through baptism. When we go under the water, we are showing that we believe and identify with Jesus' death for our sin and when we come up out of the water, we're saying that we believe and identify with Jesus' resurrection for our forgiveness and for a new eternal life with him. If you've never been baptized, I want to encourage you, take the next step, talk with me about it. You can fill out that tear-off panel on the back, check baptism, text believe to our text and church number, go to our website, fill out the baptism form, give us a chance to talk to you about going public before the church and the world that Jesus has saved you. The last thing that I want us to do, we will have an altar call today, all right? If if you're uncomfortable coming forward, no hard feelings, none at all. But I want to encourage every saint to pray this kind of prayer. It's from a principal of Princeton about 100 years ago from Hodge. You can begin to play. He writes this, and this is what I'm going to End this time with, and you respond. But pray this prayer with me. It says, Almighty God, who by the death of your dear Son Jesus Christ has destroyed death, by his rest in the tomb, has sanctified the graves of the saints, and by his glorious resurrection has brought life and immortality to light, receive, we ask you, our unfeigned thanks for that victory over death and the grave which he has obtained for us and for all who sleep in him. And keep us in everlasting fellowship with all that wait for you on earth and with all that are around you in heaven, in union with him who is the resurrection and the life, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Ghost, ever one God, world without end. Amen. I want to encourage you, I'm going to go to the altar today, and I love this, to give him unfeigned thanks for his resurrection. Will you stand and join me? you for the wonderful privilege to gather here with the saints to call upon your name father we rejoice that there is a savior a mediator in heaven who has chosen to hear from us to hear our cries, to hear our praises to interact with us to pour out his spirit his very presence in our lives and even in this room dear god And Lord, we do ask you, um, Jesus, in your name, by the power of your Holy Spirit, to change us. May we evidence that you are raised and exalted. May people taste your kingdom by looking and seeing the difference it's made in our lives. And Lord, we pray that you'll continue to grant repentance and faith and to save the lost and dying, our friends, our family neighbors and co-workers and then lord we rejoice in the holy spirit that one day because we are in you even if we die we can have the sure confidence and hope that david uh, prophesied about that there's no grave that will hold us it's impossible for us in your name to remain in those graves and we give you glory and honor for that We pray this in Jesus' strong name and all God's people say, amen. If you'll just remain standing for just a second, Brother Rick's going to lead us in one last song. All right. Uh, Don't forget, though, tonight uh, Pastor Aaron will be online uh, teaching through the last part of his commandments, Jesus' commands um, series. Um, this coming Wednesday we'll have corporate prayer in here come out and pray with me and study the book of Revelation don't forget parents if you want to dedicate your uh, child uh, fill out that tear off form and the ushers will be at the door they can go now by the way I didn't know if I was supposed to give them a signal oh they're already there <laughs> Sam's sitting there looking at me like I'm, I'm here uh, but you can drop off anything uh, to them and they'll make sure uh, to get it to my office thank you so much for coming to worship with us today Brother Rick, close us out and I'm going to be in the back waving at people Alright. We're getting close. Wave now and maybe a handshake soon. Alright. Take your hymn books, church. Page 800. You know, uh, sometimes I think that we're waiting on our nation to say this prayer or to pray to God. But if you remember, God said that if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, that he'll heal the land. Don't, don't wait on the nation to turn. their are not country, but take it a little bit further, uh, I'll heal, hear their prayers and I'll heal their land, that's personal, he'll also, if you're living today personally in a broken land of your life, the, the, the secret always having us healed is to humble ourselves and go to him in prayer, so let's do that for our nation, here we go. <music> You're listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message at 11 a.m. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. To learn more, visit mtcarmeldemarest.com or facebook.com forward slash mtcarmeldemarest. Thanks for listening.